Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Well, here we are at the end of another calendar year, which, you know, I know I've seen this meme on Instagram that's like, you know, being an adult is just turning to your friends and saying, I can't believe it's another year over and over until you die. Uh, That's what it feels like. These moments when we stand between an ending and a new beginning, they invite us to reflect on where we've been and where we're headed. How did last year go? How would I like next year to go? What's working? What's not working? What do I embrace in this season and what do I release? Another way of getting at these questions is to ask, what am I creating with my life? What am I creating with my life? What good things am I fostering, bringing about, creating in the world? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a friendship or a family, a home, a hospitable space, a community. Maybe it's your work, your inner life, your health. What am I creating and what would I like to create in the year to come? Throughout the season of Advent and now in Christmastide, we've been following this series of meditations that are drawn from the life of Mary, which are known in the Catholic tradition as the joyful mysteries. And we've been considering how these joyful mysteries provide a grid for thinking about our lives of creativity, the ways we are creative in the world. We started with Annunciation, just as Mary receives an Annunciation, this divine spark. So we too are invited to remain open, slowing down, creating space for the idea, for the divine calling, so that we can say yes. And then Visitation. Just as Mary, with her own calling, can celebrate with her cousin Elizabeth, Holding our own creative vocation allows us to celebrate others. And when we notice jealousy or comparison within ourselves, maybe that's an invitation to recognize the goodness and beauty of our own calling. Then nativity. Just as Mary brings the Christ child into the world, so we can embrace the long, slow gestation the turmoil of labor, the exhaustion of giving birth to creative work in the world. And then the presentation. Just as Mary offers her child in the temple, when we offer what we created, it feels vulnerable. But what we offer was first gift to us. And so we begin to see ourselves participating in the whole story the whole story that has been unfolding rather than being evaluated on our performance. Now, before we continue today with the final meditation from the Joyful Mysteries, I want to take a step back and say a word about creativity, uh, creativity as a whole. You, you, whoever you are, 
whatever your life, are creative. We have this tendency in our culture to label certain people, certain work, creative. Music, painting, design, dance, poetry, literature, and so on. Artists are creative, and the rest of us, it seems, are not. Or maybe we're only creative in those moments where we pop into an artistic endeavor, and then we cease being creative when we get back to our normal daily lives. But we are all creative, all the time. To create is to initiate, to bring about goodness as an expression of your own free, unforced will. It's your unique contribution, your impact on our shared world. And this is going on all the time as you solve problems and respond with adaptability to novel situations. You are creative as you repair an engine, as you build a spreadsheet, as you code a website, as you bake a cake, as you write a proposal, as you cultivate a garden, as you refine a process. But most importantly, we are all engaged in creating our relationships. This is, I think, where our creativity is at its most vital. We are creating spaces where we hope others in our life feel known, welcomed, seen. As a friend, as a partner, as a manager, as a parent, as a boss, as a sibling, as a neighbor, we are all the time making choices of how we're going to contribute to this space that is in between us. I'd like to invite you just now to take a moment and consider where are the areas in your life where you make a difference, where your presence contributes meaningfully? In what relationships does your energy, time, intelligence, generosity, warmth, goodwill come to bear on people around you? Maybe you're raising kids or teaching a class, or mentoring a new hire, building a marriage, setting the table and inviting a friend, sharing a meal, listening to a client, waving at a neighbor. These relationships are our most vital, beautiful areas of creativity. But they're also the trickiest, aren't they? I mean, nothing seems to demand so much of our energy, time, and effort, and with such unpredictable results. It's like, okay, when I bake a pie, I love baking. When I bake a pie, if I underbake it and the custard doesn't set up right, the pie doesn't resent me for it. The pie isn't going to bring it up in therapy. The pie doesn't remind me of my failure in that tone of voice that just gets under my skin. Right? It just sits there. It's a pie, not a person. But people, unlike pie or a spreadsheet or a poem or a process, when we pour out our creative energy on building up a relationship, we are giving our creativity to a person who is also a creator. Unlike a pie, they don't sit still. They are active too, creating, interpreting, responding, or not responding, and it gets complicated and messy. So we are all creative because we're all in relationship to someone in some way, and because we are all in relationship to other creative persons, we're all sharing in this complexity together. 
How do we live as a creator amid other creators? This brings us to the fifth and final joyful mystery. As we join Mary in this last meditation, we're invited to join in the divine life, which is counterintuitively to let them be. Let them be. In Luke 2, after the presentation of Jesus as an infant in the temple, which we explored together on Christmas Eve last week, we get this sudden narrative leap of 12 years. And after all this time passes, we're joining the Holy Family with the nearly teenage Jesus on a trip back to Jerusalem for the Passover. So as, you, as I read the story, uh, maybe think about a 12-year-old you know, or yourself as a 12-year-old, because uh, it's just flabbergasting. Okay, now every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up as usual for the festival. When the festival has ended and they started to return, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of this. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Wild. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends, and when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. Okay, we don't get a lot of stories from the childhood of Jesus. Most of what we have, there's all these apocryphal stories and these like Gospel of Thomas or whatever, uh, these stories of Jesus as a child. It's, it's mostly him like, you know, um, uh, killing birds with his will. It's very weird, mysterious stuff. This is the only story in the Gospels we have of Jesus as a child, and it's illuminating because if nothing else, it seems like Jesus is just like any other 12-year-old boy, totally unaware of what's going on around him. Like, he is in his own world. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. If anything, I feel like Luke is really understating this scenario. I mean, can you imagine losing a 12-year-old child in a city that you don't live in, and then after three days, just finding him sitting in a church chatting with some priests about theology? I feel like the word grounded doesn't begin to cover the situation, right? But Jesus, if anything, seems surprised that Mary is surprised. He said to them, why are you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Okay, aside from this, there's a, there's a kind of a messianic resonance that Luke is trying to set up here for Jesus, right? But aside from that, there's a dynamic here that I feel like any parent of a teenage child is familiar with. Not the losing your child in a city part, hopefully. Uh, there's this, this point where all of your hard work of parenting pays off and the child begins to individuate. They will, all on their own, become their own person, and they start to head off in directions that boggle your mind and that you never saw coming. They will become unmistakably themselves. And now the work, the precarious balance, is to provide enough presence and guidance and support, but also enough space, enough distance, enough room for them to find their footing as themselves. And that's a tricky balance. 
It can be especially tricky because up until that moment, the work has been to teach, to guide, to direct, to provide secure presence and attachment. And now the job is to a huge degree to step back and let them be. Let them be. This isn't just good advice for raising teenagers. I think this is a way that all of us in our creative endeavors can find ourselves caught up in the divine life. Because as it turns out, this is actually central to God's way of loving us. Let them be. There's actually a theological term for this. It's called kenosis. Kenosis, self-emptying, releasing. We get this term from Philippians 2, where Paul tells us that Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness. Emptying himself, kenosis, is the laying aside of power, authority, control, in order to make space. Many theologians today are talking about kenosis as the way in which God makes room for creation by withdrawing, by stepping back. That is, the divine leaves us space to unfold, to become ourselves, to individuate. I mean, think about it. Okay, if God really wants a world where everyone lives fully in divine love, why wouldn't God just be visible, tangibly, obviously present to all of us all of the time? Why doesn't God just pop in all the time and tell us what to do? I've wanted this, right? Haven't you wanted this? Just tell me what to do. Imagine you're about to make a choice, and then a blinding divine light pops out beside you and says, are you sure about that? What if instead you took a nap? You know? Well, that, that of course, is how we respond to three-year-olds, right? Maybe we need a nap time. We're there and we're present because the three-year-old doesn't have the capacity yet to order their lives. But as they grow older, we have to step back and give them room to make their own choices, to engage their own creativity. We have to let them be. Because God has created us in the divine image, because God has created creators... Because God desires mature human personalities that truly love what's good and bring their own creative contributions, God gives us space. We need room to try and fail and learn and become. And so God practices kenosis. God lets go of control. God makes room. And so we become the beautiful, unique, creative selves that we are. Okay, now holding all of this, as we read Mary's story as a pattern for creativity, as we join Mary in finding Jesus becoming his own individual unique self in the temple, we too, as we create relationships, as we interact as creators in relationship to other creators, we reach a point where we also need to let other people be. Just as Mike did a few weeks ago, I want to use an example from my own kind of creative work of preaching. Uh, if there's one thing I've learned over my years of preaching, it is this. I have just no idea what the outcome of any individual sermon will be. 
Uh, what often happens is when I preach a sermon and I feel really good about it, I feel like, oh, yeah, that was, that was a nice one. I'll get a few like nice things, you know, nice comments. And then when I get up here and I preach and I think, oh, that, that was not it. That did not land. That's the one you all tell me changed your life. But mostly, I just don't know, right? I preach, and you go off into your lives, you, and I go home, and I have just no idea what my words meant to you. Because from the moment I stand up here and begin preaching, this sermon isn't mine anymore. It's yours. I mean, hopefully I create some space where you can reflect on your life, on divine love, on this world, but ultimately you're going to carry away maybe a word, maybe a phrase, or a little section of this sermon off into the privacy of your own inner life, and you're going to make something out of it. And it's yours. Your creativity goes to work, and you make meaning in your life with God. Very often, people come up to me and they share something from a sermon that I gave that they say helped them, and I'll think, I don't think I said that. <laughs> I don't remember saying that. But that's, that's because you have made this connection, and off you go, off you go, and it's, it's not mine anymore. I once heard a mentor who's an incredible teacher tell me that every time he preaches, when he's done and he walks out of the pulpit, he imagines holding this like helium balloon and he lets it go. The sermon once preached no longer belongs to the pastor. This is the paradox of every creative endeavor we offer one another, whether it's writing a poem, raising a child, deepening a relationship, training a new hire, creating art. After the idea, after the labor to bring it about, after offering it, there comes a point where you can no longer control the outcome. And it's time to step back, to let them be, to join the divine way of kenosis, letting go of control. And that's so tender, isn't it? I mean, you've invested so much in raising the child, in building the marriage, in deepening the friendship. And now you realize that this whole thing isn't in your hands. It's in their hands. They're going to have to respond, and we can't control that. And unlike baking a pie, they aren't going to just sit there. They'll be active. They're going to show up with their own creativity in ways that we didn't foresee and maybe didn't want. The spouse is going to announce that they need a career change or they want to go back to school. Your direct report is, direct report is going to come up with an idea that while it's good, it's going to disrupt the whole workflow. Your friend will show how something you said hurt them. Your sibling will move across the country. Your child will declare that they want to change their major to philosophy. <laughs> My poor parents. When the other person shows up in a way that disrupts us, that isn't what we plan, that is out of our control, our tendency, right, is to want to exert ourselves in bringing them to their senses, bringing them around, reestablishing the status quo. But in these moments, maybe our most creative contribution is to let them be, to make space. And that might be for us sharing in the divine life, kenosis, emptying ourselves, letting go of control, 
making space for them to be themselves. Because you are a creator in the midst of other creators, your creative work is really the spark for other creativity. Creativity you couldn't initially imagine. In these contexts, what you are creating is an environment where the other person can hear, receive, and follow their own creative spark, their own enunciation. And it will definitely take them in directions you didn't anticipate. And that is good. Like Mary startled by Jesus in the temple, you'll be surprised and perplexed and maybe a little mad and hopefully eventually see them bringing about a good you couldn't have dreamed of. In our relationships, so often creativity looks like this. Take a deep breath. Let the balloon go. Listen. Hold your own tensions and your fears and your doubts Release all the little ways you want to reassert control, that tone of voice, that comment, that email. At least slow down. Leave space. See what they come up with. For surely, if the divine does this with us, if divine kenosis allows us to try, to fail, to learn, to become inexpressibly ourselves, then it's good to offer that kenosis to one another. This brings us back to the beginning. Annunciation, the spark of an idea. Visitation, having our own calling held with gratitude. Nativity, that work to bring that calling alive into the world. Presentation, offering what we've created into the world. And then finally, finally, we find our creative offering has a life of its own and we let it go. We release it. We step back from it. Like a mother, we've offered ourselves to bring something new into the world. And like a mother, we feel the complex joy and grief and tenderness when it is time to let go. But in letting go, we are open again to be surprised, available again to the next annunciation, the next possibility, the next birthing. As we move toward a new year, I don't know where you find yourself today. Maybe a new idea is bursting upon you, and it's inviting you, and it's exciting, but a little frightening. Maybe you are in the long and sometimes tedious, sometimes overwhelming, sometimes painful work of laboring to bring an idea to life. Maybe you're in the vulnerable moment of offering holding your creation out and wondering if it's enough. Or maybe you're in a season of letting go, of stepping back, of releasing. Wherever you find yourself in this pattern of creativity, your energy, your time, intelligence, generosity, warmth, and goodwill is a gift to our world. Maybe you raise kids, maybe you deepen a relationship, maybe you repair an engine, maybe you build a spreadsheet, code a website, bake a cake, write a proposal, cultivate a garden, refine a project, teach, sing, mentor, set the table, invite, share. Right there, you're being invited to participate in divine love. Right there, you're being given space to try, to play, to create, and to fail, and to experiment, and to become more and more yourself. 
And right there, you get to create space for others to try, to play, to create, to fail, and experiment, and to become more and more themselves. Divine love has made space for you to become this year. May we likewise make space for others. May it be so, and let us pray. God, as we begin a new year together, may we be open again to receiving a new spark, a new idea, a new way forward. And may we partner with you in creating space for those in our lives to flourish. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.